Thank you, Jonathan, uh, for sharing. Uh, yeah, wonderful. Uh, yeah, testimony of grace and and, and faith and trust in the Lord. Uh, last uh, last week on on uh, well yeah sometime last week, uh, Olivia and myself, uh, our senior pastor and his wife and uh, uh, we went to uh, and then uh, you know a couple others from our congregation were uh, eating dinner we had a worship service at, uh, at one of our uh, one of our church members' homes. They moved into a new home and so we had a worship service and we we're eating there and um, our senior pastor from our Korean congregation, um, Pastor Inky, was telling us about. Um, how his doctor told him that his cholesterol was too high and that he needed to do something. Right? He needed to change his diet. He, he, he couldn't eat steak, red meat, and stuff like that. He's on medication. And the other thing he said to do was, you need to go exercise. And so um, there's a place called uh, Anytime Fitness right uh, over here. And so he, um, he hired a personal trainer, and he started working out with this guy, uh, 12 sessions. And the first thing he asked him was, hey, do you think, um, Pastor Inky said, do you think in one week, I'm sorry, in one month I can get a six-pack? And uh, the guy's like, no. <laughs> said, maybe in, three, maybe in three months I can get you a six-pack, but definitely not in one. And so he, saw, he said uh, the first time he did it, the, the guy was like yelling at him and he telling him to do uh, all these different things. He said, the first time I did it, I could do 20 push-ups, 20 sit-ups, and 20 uh, squats, right, with nothing, right, 20 squats. And he said, by the end of 12 sessions, at the end of 12 sessions, he got up to doing 100 push-ups. It's our 60-year-old pastor, 61-year-old, 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, and 100 squats. And he said, yeah, the whole time I'm doing it, the guy's like yelling at me. He's screaming at me. He's like, come on, Mr. Kim, you can do one more. Come on, you can do one more. Don't give up now. And he's like screaming at him, and he's yelling at him. He's like, by the time I knew it, after 12 weeks, I could do 100 of each of these things. And he was so proud of himself. He was so happy. He said, I'm done. I don't need this anymore. <laughs> and he said after that, the most he could ever do was 40. <laughs> 40 push-ups, 40 sit-ups, and 40 squats. He's like, what happened? I guess a part of it is because the guy wasn't yelling at him. That's important. That's a huge part to it because what he was learning is what we've been learning. That's what God said, that we were not meant to do life alone, and we can never reach our full potential unless we're in relationship with other people. Here's the problem, though. We've come to realize this through the Word, but we've also come to experience it through the world and through life and through our own relationships and our own experiences. As much as we've been called into relationship with people, the very people that challenge us are the very people who frustrate and annoy us, too. Sometimes that guy yelling at you, Mr. Kim, do it, Mr. Kim, do it, can be the most annoying sound you could ever hear, can't it? The people who challenge you to grow the most can be the most frustrating people to be in relationship with also. Because there's the reality. As much as we're called to be in relationship with people, relationships are hard and they get messy and there's conflict that happens. And unless we learn not the art of conflict, the world will tell us you need to understand the art of conflict. It's not that. We have to understand the heart of conflict. What is it? What is the heart attitude that enables us to fight a good fight so that it becomes constructive and gospel-exalting rather than destructive and tears down the gospel at work in our lives. Today, I want to look at what Jesus says about conflict, what Jesus says about these relationships. He talks a lot of, uh, says a lot about it, but I want to read from Matthew chapter 18 <clears throat> and read three verses here that talk about Jesus on conflict and what happens when you've got a beef with somebody, when you've got issues with somebody, particularly someone within the church. What do you do in a situation like that? 
I'm going to read from Matthew 18, um, verses 15 through 17. And this is the Word of God, and as you can tell in your Bible, since it's written in red, it uh, means that Jesus is saying these things. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. <clears throat> Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is God's word. What is this telling us? This is important because we've, we could... We could read all that we want to read in the world, on the internet, on Google. We can ask all these, uh, Siri, we can look at different passages in Scripture. But what does Jesus say? What is he telling us to do when you've got issues with somebody, right? You've got beef with someone in church, right? I want you to think for a couple seconds right now. Is there someone that I've got an issue with, a relational uh, difficulty with? There's someone I've had a falling out with? Just think about that person. Get them in your mind's eye, okay? Think about them. You can write their name down on a piece of paper, um, I want you to think about this because this is practical and it's personal and it's real and it's a litmus test in many ways of our relationship with God. So you think about that. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say in Matthew 18? Here's the first thing. It's your move. It's your move and the first move is one-on-one. If you've got an issue, if you have had a falling out with somebody, whose turn is it? Whose move is it? Jesus says it's your move. And that first move is always going to be one-on-one. Last week, I was, uh, I was home one night. Um, I was doing some work in my office. In, sorry, not my office, in my, in my bedroom, which functions as my office because we, our home is very small. But uh, my bedroom slash living room slash office, I'm just kidding, slash kitchen, just kidding. But I, I was doing some work at home in my, uh, in my room, and uh, it was time for dinner. And so Olivia said, uh, I could hear her uh, say, Elijah, can you go tell daddy it's time to eat dinner. For whatever reason, all of our kids love coming to tell daddy that it's time to eat dinner. And so Elise said, no, Elijah, no, Elijah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him. And so they pitter-patter their feet, come running to the door. They bust open the door. They're screaming. They're yelling. Daddy's like, uh, Elijah's like, daddy, mommy said it's time to eat. And Elise is like, no, daddy, mommy said it's time to eat. And so they're fighting over who gets to tell me. Elijah gets the words out first. Elise says, no, Elijah, no, I wanted to tell Daddy. And Elijah said, no, 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 Daddy, uh, Mommy told me to tell Daddy. And they get upset, and Elise starts crying. She's like, I wanted to tell Daddy. And she starts like kind of doing like this and hitting Elijah really softly. I wanted to tell Daddy. And Elijah, not one to take that stuff, even though we tell him you don't do this to girls, he kicks her. <laughs> and so she's like, oh, no, I wanted to tell. And so I said, guys, come over here. They're both upset. Their faces are red. They're crying. And uh, I say, guys, that's not the way we deal with this, okay? okay? Both of you made a wrong choice. This was a bad choice. Okay, who's going to apologize first? And immediately, Elise says, opa, which means older brother, Elijah. And Elijah said, no, Elise. And I said, guys, you think when you get into an argument that the strongest person is the one who hits the hardest or kicks the hardest, but the strongest person when there's a fight in a relationship is the one who can say sorry first because they understand that they did wrong first. I said, who's going to be the stronger person here? And Elijah said, Elise. And Elise said, no, Elijah. 
Who is it? Let me, let me present this to the jury. Who ought to say sorry first? Who ought to apologize? Who ought to own their mistake first? Right? So think about this. Yeah, should it be Elijah or should it be Elise? And the answer that Jesus would give is yes. Both of them need to make that first move because the ball is now in their court. What are you talking about? Elijah was in the wrong. No, what are you talking about? Elise was in the wrong. They were both in the wrong. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, you could very literally say, your brother Elijah sinned against you, Elise. He says, go and show him his fault. So it's on Elise. She needs to make the first move. But you can't read Matthew 18 without reading Matthew 5. And this is what it says in Matthew 5, verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. In Matthew 18, he's saying, listen, if your brother sinned against you, it's your move. And Matthew 5 says, if you sinned against your brother, it's your move. In other words, he doesn't care whose fault it is. If there's a rupture in the relationship, he says, it's your move. It's your move. God is a whole lot more concerned not with what you brought into the, uh, what damage you brought into it or what you expect the other person to do. He's not concerned with these things as much as he's concerned about what you're going to do in order to own that and play out the gospel by bringing, taking the first step and offering forgiveness to the other person. In other words, whoever is at fault, if you've got an issue with somebody, then it's your move. We don't like that, especially when we think 99% of the issue is their fault. And only 1% is mine. But that's what Jesus is saying here. So between Elijah and Elise, who's going to go first? Who's going to make the first move? I'll tell you who's going to make the first move. The one who is more spiritually mature in that moment. You remember, right? When Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he talks about the Corinthian church and he says, you know what, you guys are, are gifted. You guys are always sharing testimonies of the work of God in your life. You have so much knowledge. And to everybody looking at the Corinthian church, they would say, this church is a baller church. They're mature. They've got it all together. But in the very next chapter, Paul says, you know what, I wish that I could call you spiritual people. I wish I could address you as mature, but I can't. I have to call you worldly. I have to call you immature. Why? He says, because you cannot get along with each other. You guys understand this, right? This is Harvest 201 every week of it. The litmus test of your relationship with God and your spiritual maturity is not in how many memory verses you know. It's not in how many times you've read the Bible through and through. It's not in how many positions you hold in the church. The litmus test of your relationship with God is how you relate to people because God created us to be in relationship with other people. And if we cannot get that right, then it's an indication that we're not as spiritually mature as we think. Whose move is it? It's the move of the person who believes that they are the more spiritually mature person in that moment. That's what Jesus is saying. If you've got a ruptured relationship with somebody, don't wait for them. The ball's in your court. And if the ball's in your court, here's your first move every time. The first move is one-on-one. -on -one. It says, if your brother sins against him, go in and show him his fault just between the two of you. All right, there it is. A lot of times people say, hey, you know what, DL, I need you to help me. I need you to help me in this relationship with somebody because I don't like them and they don't like me or something's happened, um, which I'm cool with. I'm cool with doing that. But here's your first step. 
Okay, here's your first step. Whether you did wrong or they did wrong, okay, the first step is going to be one-on-one. Again, that's an art, right? How, how do you do this? What is the science of it? But it's the heart that is most important. Again, you can't read Matthew 18 before you read Matthew 7. And Matthew 7 says, if you've got something, you, you're looking at somebody and you see they've got a speck of dust in their eye, it says, if you want to confront them, first take that log out of your eye. I talked about this a couple years ago about a guy named Plank Man who's got this plank of wood in his eye, and he can't even see clearly to see the sawdust in someone else's eye because he's got a plank in his eye. And so here he is trying to fix everybody's problem, telling everybody what's wrong with them. But the problem is there's carnage everywhere he goes because he keeps bumping into people. He's trying to look at the sawdust in their eye, but every time he gets close to them, he bumps into them with that two-by-four. Saying, listen, you want to help somebody out, you got to take that plank out of your eye first, and then you'll be able to see clearly so that you can talk about it with the other person. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, be an expert in your own sin before you become an expert in the sins of other people. Man, anybody can be an expert at the sins of others. He's like, you bring so much conflict and damage in destructive ways if you become an expert at other people before you become an expert in your own sin. Because it's easy for us to think I'm a little sinner and they're a big sinner. But here's our reality. The littler a sinner we think we are, the littler Savior we think we'll need. The bigger Savior we, sinner we think they are, the bigger Savior we'll think they need. God, they need your help. I don't need it. But guys, the bigger we see ourselves as a sinner, the more beautiful our Savior is going to be. And then the more grace we receive, the more grace we will extend to other people. This ain't just theoretical, okay? This is practical. Think about this. In your relationships that you thought about in your mind, that you wrote down on your piece of paper, I'm not telling you this is a good idea. This is life here. This is for me too. When I've got an issue with somebody, I need to make the first move. And I need to do it one-on-one. And I need to check my heart before I do any of these things. Because he says, speaking in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up. When we begin to speak the truth in love, right, this is where maturity comes from. Yeah, so I'm going to speak the truth in love to them because they frustrate me, they annoy me. Here's how you know. Here's how you know that you're speaking the truth in love. Because you do it for their benefit, not yours. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Man. My husband snores so much, I'm going to have to kick him out onto the couch. Well, that's so mean, but that's speaking the truth in love. I got to speak the truth in love. I love him. I don't want a divorce, so I got to speak the truth in love. No, that's not in love. You got to work through your heart because what you're really doing is you're speaking to him because of your benefit, not because of his, for your good instead of his. Speak the truth in love. If you've got a ruptured relationship, Jesus says, here's the first move. It's yours, and it's always one-on-one first. For some of us, uh, we can end the sermon there, and that's our first step. That's our homework today. But the second thing, maybe you've done that already. Jesus says, sometimes that won't work, and if that doesn't work, here's the second step you've got to take. Second thing is involve others only if one-on-one doesn't bring resolution. Involve others only when one-on-one doesn't bring resolution. Here's what he says. If he listens to you, you've won him over. But if he will not listen, verse 16, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if they don't listen, then yeah, we can bring in one or two other people. Let's work through this together. 
But other people is always plan B. It's not plan A. That's your spare tire. It's not your first resort. Driving on a spare tire is necessary in order to get from point A to point B, but you don't want to drive on that spare tire because it wasn't meant to be your first resort. You do that for too long, it's going to lead to a lot of damage, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, he understands human, he, he's, a, he's a wise and sage in, in the way that he understands human nature because he knows that our tendency is going to be, hey, if I got beef with somebody, I, the first thing I want to do is I want to go and tell somebody about it. Isn't that what we want to do? First thing we want to do is we want to go, well, because I'm angry, I'm mad, I need to vent to somebody. Or, ah, oh, these things, I can't keep them inside, I can't, I don't want to be a turtle, so i got to get it off my chest. But he's saying, no, 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 you don't go and tell other people about it. Your first move has to be you tell God, you search your heart, and then you go and you talk to the person. Talking and involving other people is plan B. It's your second option. It's not option one. Jesus knows, and he says this because he knows our tendency is going to be, I got to go call up my best friend, or I got to call up my, I got to tell this to my, oh, man, wait till they hear. They're going to, man, they're going to agree with me because we want to validate our feelings. We want someone to give us sympathy. We want someone to say, it's okay, right? It's going to be all right. That's cool, but here's what it does. It, it, it brings into this conflict people that don't need to be brought into the conflict. So I've got a beef with Keishla. I don't really, but if I have a beef with Keishla, hey, you know what? We got issues. I'm going to go and tell Lynette. Hey, Lynette, come and, and, and help us. What happens is Lynette begins to have to choose sides because I haven't, I haven't confronted my heart. I haven't prayed about it. I haven't sought God over it. I haven't prayed about it. I'm just angry at her or I did something and she's angry at me. So I go tell Lynette. Say, you know what Keishla did? It brings someone else into the equation who doesn't, doesn't need to be there and it drives a wedge between the person that I've got an issue with and the person that I have brought into the conflict. Not only that, it further drives a wedge between me and the person with whom I initially had conflict because instead of going with them, I'm rehearsing these things. Right? We think, well, it's just to get it off my chest is really helpful and it's really good and I think it helps me. Every psychologist will say no. It, it, instead, of, instead of venting to get it off your chest, what it does is it rehearses the anger and it disrupts the relationship even more. Your first move, our first move has always got to be one-to-one. -one. And only after that has not brought about a resolution do we bring other people into it. Jesus makes this very clear here. You see this sometimes in, uh, in sports teams, right? Reports out of Orlando say that the Orlando Magic, player A and player B are having issues with each other. Let's go straight to the locker room and let's have a conversation with player A. Player A, hey, heard you got beef with player B. What's going on? One of two ways, and this is what we want. What we want as viewers, we want them to say, oh, yeah, you know what? Some people on our team are selfish. They don't pass the ball. They don't understand, man. They don't know what it is to be a team. Together, everyone achieves more. They don't get that. There's no I in team. They act like there's a me in team, all that stuff, and they get all upset, and we love that. We're like, oh, my gosh, that's all this drama, right? We got to get them out of here. We love that, right? That's one way that you hear teams dealing with it. But another way we hear them deal with it is when player A says, you know, that's between us. That's between him and me. Right? That's something that's going to take, a conversation that's going to take place behind closed doors, man to man. We're going to deal with it because this is in-house stuff and it doesn't need to get out there. We're not going to play this game in the media. And we don't like that as fans. We want to get the juicy gossip. But how that hinders relationship and the resolution that could be brought to this conflict when we bring unnecessarily into it all of these other people who don't need to be in it.
Like Jesus saying plan B is always to involve other people. That's not the first thing. And then he says, it's interesting because he says, if your brother sins against you. The issue that he's talking about here is sinfulness. He's not talking about the fact that you are annoyed by somebody. And the fact that somebody snores, that's not a sinful thing. Guys, if it's not an issue of sin, we need to learn to be patient, right, to understand, to have conversations, definitely. But if the issue is not sin, then we don't need to call out everything that our spouse does or that our, 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 our dad does or that our, our brother does or our sister does. I need to clear the air. Yeah, sometimes we need to clear the air, but there are a lot of times where we just need to exercise patience and forbearance and where we grow to become more like Christ. The issue that he's talking about here is if there's sin. If there's sin here and he doesn't listen to you, she doesn't listen to you, then we bring in one or two other people to help us resolve this. He's saying, I want you to work through this in such a way that the end result is that he sees the severity of his sin and he's led to repentance. It's not you go find three people who hate Johnny and then you bring them and then you gang tackle Johnny. That's not what he's saying. Hey, you annoyed with John? Me too. He did this thing to me. Come on, let's go talk to him. Hey, you annoyed with John? You are? Okay, come, let's go talk to him. Hey, Johnny, we all got, we all got issues with you, man. The cologne that you're wearing, that's like from the 70s, man. It smells like... It smells all weird, and, and the clothes that you're wearing, it's offensive to me. I don't think you ought to wear that anymore. And the way that, man, you need to stop taking off your shoes during worship service because it bothers me. I don't want to see your feet. Like, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about like you're annoyed with somebody, and you bring in other people who are annoyed with him. He's saying, if your brother sins against you, and he refuses to see the reality of that sin, That's when we bring other people because the end game is we want to see health in this relationship. And if two or three people don't work, then bring it to the church. This is all the last resort, though. It's not your first thing. And I think a lot of our relationships, the relational explosion would be contained a lot more if we would learn to heed the words of Jesus, and understand that I don't need to wait for the other person. Right? First, the ball is in my court, and I need to go one-on-one with them. And only if that doesn't lead to resolution do I go and talk to somebody else. That's the second thing. The third thing we see, reconciliation is the goal, but you can't force it. Jesus says at the end, if he refuses to listen even to the church Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What does he mean by that? It means ultimately, if they refuse to listen to all of the structures that Jesus has set in place, and they refuse to acknowledge the reality of the sin in their heart, then most likely, okay, here's what Jesus is saying. Here is Jesus' diagnosis. That person is not a follower of Christ. And so treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. How do you treat a pagan or tax collector? The way Jesus treated them was he loved them and he loved them and he loved them and he loved them and he he went to the cross for them. That's what it means to treat them as a pagan or tax collector. It's saying, yeah, they may not be a brother or sister, but we pray and we pursue them continually with the end goal that they become a follower of Jesus Christ. See, the, the issue at hand here 
is not about me feeling better about this relationship. Yeah, that's part of it. But the deepest issue that Jesus is pointing to here, the deepest issue is that this person needs reconciliation with God, and he or she does not see that. And that, to Jesus, is the biggest issue that we need to work through here and we need to deal with here. It's like, that's what I'm talking about. It's not about the fact that this person uh, annoys you or that you get frustrated with them or you don't like the way they talk or you don't like their accent or you don't like the, 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 the clothes that they wear or you don't like the way that they sing too loud in service. That's not the issue. I think the, the deepest issue is that they've got to reconcile with their Holy Father in heaven, and that's what breaks the heart of Jesus. That's the goal, is reconciliation first with God and then with us. But it has to happen first here. Right? We have to be awakened to the reality of our sin. So it's not then. The goal is not about me winning an argument with somebody. It's not about me proving the other person wrong. It's not about me showing how right I am and how wrong they are. He says, if you get this just between the two of you, if he listens, you have won your brother over. That's the concern of Jesus. Like, I'm after their heart, I'm after their soul, I'm after their eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not about your interests here and there. It's about their soul and about their relationship with God and the fact that the sin is destroying their lives. That's the issue to Jesus. And that's what I'm trying to get at. That's what he's saying. And so the goal is reconciliation here. And that's what we fight for. Romans 12.8 says, as much as it depends on you, as far as it is up to you, live at peace with everyone. So he's saying you do whatever you can so that when you get to the other side in glory, when you think about that relationship that you say, I did everything that I could in order to make this relationship right, and I can be at peace with that. Because here's what Jesus is saying. The reality of the messiness of human relationships is it doesn't always work out this way. But as much as it is up to you, right, you do whatever it takes to love that pagan or tax collector, whomever it is, to love them in a way that, you, uh, that only God's love through you can do. Uh, several years ago, probably about 10 years ago, I was... Uh, you know, I was looking through the, uh, surfing the internet and looking at, at different church websites, right? different church websites, and came across this one website, um, Church Up North, and uh, I was looking through and, and just kind of looking at different things. It might have been around the time we are redesigning our website. I forget what the context was. But I was looking through the website. I, I clicked on sermons, and I looked at the, the, the sermon series titles, and I was like, man, that's crazy. I preached a sermon series like that recently. Looked at the next sermon series, and it was, oh, I preached on one of those too. Three series. And so as far as I could go, like I could see, oh, my goodness, even the sermon titles and the passages are the same as what I've preached. And so I started listening to one, and to my horror, I was listening verbatim, word for word, to sermons that I had preached, and it was uploaded onto their website by that pastor. That pastor had preached it for several months. And, you know, part of it is, yeah, that's cool, um, but I felt violated. It's cool. We could, we could share information. We could collaborate. That's completely cool. We do that. 
But what made it hard for me is because I listened to illustrations that I had told that had happened to me that were real and personal to me, and it was spoken from the lips of another pastor as if they were his story that happened in his life. And so I felt, uh, I felt violated. It wasn't just about the emotional, I'm sorry, about the intellectual property that was stolen. I felt like it was a violation of my personal life. And so as I worked through this, I prayed about it, and I, you know, I, I, I said, God, why, why, is, why am I reacting this way? And part of it is what I said to you. But I realized that another part of it was there was part of me that felt it was a, it was a large church. Uh, and I felt like this pastor is using my sermons and my gifting in order to prop up and build his church. And what made it hard for me was that there were gifts that that pastor had that uh, I don't have, and I want those gifts. And what made it difficult for me was that I could not take his gifts and implement them into my church and grow my church in that way. Yeah, there was a selfishness in it. There was a sense of violation that I felt. As I searched my heart, I, I, I said, you know, God, this is, this is where I'm at. And so to this day, I have not told a single soul who this is, but I did ask my house church at the time to pray for me because I need to have a conversation with this person. And I searched my heart, and I prayed, and I brought it before this person. And the response of this pastor was one of the sweetest, humblest, most repentant that I've ever had experienced that conversation with. Like, yell, I'm sorry. I am insecure about my preaching. I really wanted to make a good impression on my people. I'm sorry, I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to make this right. He told his leaders at his church, he said, whatever you decide to do with me, that's fine. They embraced him, they loved him, continued on doing a, a wonderful and vibrant and thriving ministry. To me, I felt like, man, that's a win for the kingdom of God. And I loved that, and I was so happy, and I was so thankful that it worked out that way. But can I be real here? There are times it doesn't work this way. There are times when it doesn't happen this way. And I'm still waiting some 20 years later for a relationship with one of my friends in high school. We grew up in our youth ministry together. Really good friends. Friends our first year in college. Some of you have heard me talk about this, but... We went to college together, and his expectations of friendship and my expectations were friendship for friendship were, were, were very different. We'll call him Jack. Uh, but Jack's idea of a, a friend and uh, of what he wanted from us and what I wanted from us were completely different. My first year, I just wanted to, man, I wanted to meet everybody, uh, as many people as I could. I wanted, to be, I wanted to be friends. I wanted to explore. I wanted to get to know other people, uh, get out of my bubble and, and see and experience life. He wanted just one or two close friends that would go the distance, faithful, loyal to the end. Now, that's what he wanted. It's not what I wanted. And so we would have, um, we, we would have a conflict of expectations. And I was making new friends, and I was hanging out with them, and I was playing ball with them, and Jack would come, and he would ball with us. He was probably one of the best ballers that I played, basketball uh, players that I played with also, and we would all run together. Came to the end of that year, and it was time for us to decide where we're going to live the next year. And so my assumption was like, yeah, definitely Jack, and then we're going to live with a few other guys. I was like, so, uh, you know, let's do this. And he's like, I'm not sure I want to live with 
uh, live with y'all. I'm trying, still trying to decide. I said, what are you talking about? Like, let's get, you know, Sam, Thomas, Charlie, Gene, and you together. Let's do this. And, and he's like, I'm not sure, man. I'm like, why? Like, it'll be awesome. Like, we can, we can room together. It's going to be great. And, and he, just expre- he just expressed what I said, his frustrations and, and what he wanted out of this relationship, out of this friendship. And, and I was like, dude, I'm here for you, man. I'm, I'm like, you know, we're boys. We're tight. And, but I think by that time, like, some of the damage had already been done. But he reluctantly decided to live with us. It was six of us living in one apartment, three different rooms, two, uh, two to each room. He wasn't my roommate. He lived with a uh, room with another guy. But during that year, something, something just began to change. These relationships begin to change, and he began getting real salty before salty was a word, being real salty with us and gave us a cold shoulder. Um, he would never want to be inside the apartment. He'd always go out uh, with other people, and he started running with a different crowd. Uh, some of it was, the, uh, was a different group of people who didn't go to our campus ministry. Some were the older people who lived in our apartment complex who were part of our campus ministry. And I remember one of the older guys saying to me, hey, what's going on down there? What's going on with you guys? I was like, I don't know, man. Jack's got, he got, he got issues with everybody. He's mad at the world. I don't know what it is. He won't talk to us. And then he began to explain to me what, what he was observing and what Jack was telling him. I was like, man, I understand. I understand how, you know, these guys were not close with him, but, but like, we've known each other for a long time. Like, I don't know why he's mad at me. He's like, that's why he's most mad at you, because he feels like you ought to be there for him when these other people aren't. And I began to realize, man... Maybe I have uh, jacked up this relationship. And so I remember trying to talk with him, and, and we'd have conversations. And uh, I think, you know, his mind was, at that time, was, was kind of uh, closed off to me. And after a while, for a couple months, it became like a cold war. Like, we would, we would barely talk. And I'd try and reach out to him because I was growing in my faith. He was going the opposite way. And I knew I needed to have a right relationship. I needed to do whatever I could in order to have a right relationship with him. And there was this time where, kind of at the height of this Cold War, uh, we're playing basketball, and um, there was this dude, uh, so Jack and and a bunch of us were on the same team, and we're playing against some guys we didn't know, and there was this big guy, about 6'4", 240, and uh, for whatever reason, I was was covering him, and he got the ball, and I I tried to hit the ball from him, and I ended up hitting his face, and he called foul, and then he, he threw the ball down. He got really mad, and he shoved me. I was like, I'm like six feet, 140 pounds, like dripping wet. So he, I mean, he got nothing to prove by snapping a pair of chopsticks on me. But So he came walking towards me, and then my friend Jack out of nowhere comes. He comes flying down, and he shoves a guy, and he's like, you back away from him. I was like, dang, I guess our relationship ain't that bad at all. So, and then, you know, afterwards, after the game, I went, I, I went to give my friend Jack a hug. I was like, thanks, man. Uh, but he wouldn't give me a hug. He just said, he shouldn't have pushed you. That's all he said. He shouldn't have pushed you. Right? I got to do the right thing. And I remember after that, um, it's like I, I can't have a conversation with him, so I, I would write him a letter, and I would say, hey, man, I just, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. I, I understand that, that um, I've messed things up, and I want to have a friendship the way it was in high school, the way, way it could be. And uh, last time I was up in Virginia during sabbatical uh, last summer, I was looking through and throwing out. I had boxes of letters and cards and stuff like that. I was throwing everything out, and I saw a letter that he had written. Um, He had written to me, I think, in response to that. And he's like, you know what? Um, We could try to be cool, but it's just it's never going to be the way that you or I ever wanted it to be. That's the way it kind of ended. Um, That was our second year in college. He started running with a different cr- crowd, and he started getting into, into, into drugs and, and, and into alcohol, and um, it, it would break my heart, 
break my heart when I'd see him at house parties. I'd be, I'd be driving by the apartment complex, and there'd be a party going on, and he'd be, you know, doing whatever he's doing and um, would not acknowledge me. When we were graduating uh, from college, the Korean Student Association had this graduation banquet, and at that time, I couldn't make it, uh, but he got up, and, you know, different uh, graduates would come up, and they would share, and he would talk about his new group of friends that he would, you know, go clubbing, partying with, and, and doing whatever he would do with. He just talked about um, how he met some great friends along the way. And they were loyal to him, and they loved him, and they accepted him for who he was. Um, and people told me later, hey, you know what, Jack? Um, he, really, uh, he really trashed you guys, that group of five of us that lived together. Really trashed y'all and, and, and said you guys were worse friends, uh, terrible people, all this stuff. And uh, I remember, like, my instinct was I had no care at that point to my reputation. I didn't care what people thought about me. What broke me the most was that my inability right, to see him for who he was and to see the pain that he was going through caused him to walk away from the church and from the fellowship and from the God that I believed and thought that he grew up knowing when he was in high school. And it broke my heart in this day 20 years later. I still, I pray for him, I pray for him this week. Because I prayed for him this week, that's why I, I felt like, yeah, I want to I talk about him because he was on my mind. I didn't pray for him because I'm talking about him so I could say I'm praying for him. No, I, he's still in my heart. And a lot of the guys that, that no longer walk with Jesus from my, from my old days, I still pray for them because I want them to come to know Jesus. And I can do whatever I can, but at the end of the day, man, it takes two to tango. It breaks me. It does break me. It, I, I hate that it does. I wish that we could talk and we could have a relationship and I could, I could say I'm sorry again. I could, I could mend bridges. Reconciliation is a goal, but I can't force that and neither can you. But as much as possible, right, we need to do whatever we can because when all is said and done, whether he loves me on earth or not, that's what I want is when we get to heaven that he would be there, that he would be there because he understands the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God. Whatever it takes. See, Jesus tells us these things because that's what he does for us. A brother sins against you. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. Why did he need to come to this earth because we did it wrong, because I did it wrong, because you did it wrong, because we sinned against him. We hated him. We were the ones who, who didn't care about him. We were apathetic to him. When he reached out his hand, we slapped it away. And he said, whatever I can do in order to bridge the gap and be reconciled them to God. And so he came and he gave his life to a people who did not deserve it, to a people who did not deserve mercy, to a people who did not want mercy, to a people who are running the hellbound race indifferent to the cost. And yet he came and he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. And the only reason that you and I are in relationship with the Holy Father in heaven is because one day we heard his voice calling us. It has nothing to do with our goodness or what we can contribute or anything like that. As is said often, the only thing we contributed to the gospel and to our salvation is the sin that caused Jesus to be nailed to the cross. That's all we did. And yet he loved us and he gave himself. For us. And he said, that's the end game. It's not about you airing your grievances or you feeling like this annoyance is removed from your life. 
It's about us understanding, man, the ball's in my court, and I got to go to them first and foremost. The end of the day, it's not about winning an argument. It's about winning our brother. It's about winning our sister. It's about healing their hearts in order that they might see God and be reconciled to him and through that be reconciled to people. This is our calling. It's countercultural because the world, man, the world will fight as the world fights. There will be conflict and they will be destructive about it. But Jesus says, not so with you. Right? Jesus is a peacemaker. And he says, in this world, this is what we need. Not people who will pretend to keep peace, but who really make peace by calling sin what it is and building bridges into the hearts of broken lives in order that not only could we walk in, but that the Lord could walk in as well. As far as possible, as much as it depends on us, let that be our call as peacemakers, as gospel believers, to live in harmony with everyone. Let's pray. As you think about the person that you thought about at the beginning of service. Who is it that you feel God saying, it's your move? I'll be honest with you again here, guys. This is the third week of this sermon series, and this is the third week in a row that God has brought somebody to my mind. And it's been hard for me to take a step in part because I don't know what to say. I don't know, what to, I don't know how, to, how to do this. And then God says, but this is why we pray. There's a wisdom that comes from heaven that goes beyond. And we're not out to attack people. We're here to attack problems. Now you talk one-on-one -on -one with somebody, you're not attacking them. Hey, you always do this. You never do this. We're attacking a problem. I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel appreciated. Versus... You did this, you did that. No. It's the heart. We examine our hearts. The ball's in our court. Then we move towards them. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's not be like the ones who fight in this world. Let's be different. Let's be Christ-centered. Let's be gospel-driven. Let's be changed from the inside out. Lead with forgiveness. Lead with confession. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? It's always disarmed. Always. Let's pray together for a couple moments. Committing our hearts to the Lord. Jesus, I need you. Lord, help me. Let's pray for a couple moments and then I'll pray for us. Father in heaven, we remember the words of your son, Jesus, in the gospel of John. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
not by our theology, not even by our morality, not by our political involvement, and it's not by our knowledge of all of the songs to be sung in the church, not by our wise and persuasive words. Jesus, you said, it's by our love that the world will know that you're my disciples. Not by our tolerance, not by our indifference, not by our ignoring the people who have hurt us, but by our love. A scandalous, radical, otherworldly, disarming, countercultural kind of love that only comes from heaven. Lord, we need that. Oh God, how we need that. So work in us and fill us in order that we might be emptied out, that we might be reconcilers, people to God and people to us. Lord, we need you. Help us. We love you. We can love others because you've loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.